Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 7, uh, which is not a uh, typical Christmas passage, but hopefully we'll be able to apply it to the world around us. Uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 1, the author Luke, who was a researcher, has said this, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion uh, had a servant who was sick at the point, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. The centurion uh, heard about Jesus and sent, him, uh, sent to him elders of the Jews, asking for him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went to them, uh, went with them. And when he was not far from the house, he was close. The centurion uh, sent friends to him, saying, uh, saying to him, "Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, do not I do not presume to to come to you. Uh, therefore, I do not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled, there's an emotion, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had uh, been sent returned to the house, they found his servant well. Lord, I pray for this morning, and Lord, it is, uh, it is a source of joy to see people back from Christmas break. Father, it is a source of joy to see, um, Father, friends and family and um, people coming in with, uh, with more family, but Father, at the same time, there is also, Father, a, um, a sense of privilege, Lord, that we can be a church for people who are also hurting this Christmas season. Father, I know that you have not asked us to be the only church in Tom's River. And so, Father, as people go to Redeemer and, and New Life and the Assembly of God Church and the other churches in Tom's River, Father, the Presbyterian Church, Lord, I pray that you would be most magnified. Father, I pray that all the churches collectively put the focus on you, Father, and that in Tom's River we see more and more men and women come to know you as Lord and Savior as quickly as possible, Father. That if you come back tomorrow, that because the churches today will faithful to your word, that there are more people in your kingdom. Holy Spirit, please move to that end. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, I was uh, listening to a book and uh, they talked about just like bad, uh, bad deals or like these deals that came across like kind of in the business world that became like uh, a whoopsie type moment. Uh, and back early, uh, back when the internet was starting to starting to boom and there was new websites, I think it was like 10,000 new websites every single day at one point. Uh, and it was just go growing, 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 growing. There was a, uh, one of the main companies, a top five company uh, was this company called Excite. And they were, uh, uh, they were uh, um, created by a bunch of Stafford grads that were now five, six, seven years into it. 
And these other Stafford graduate students had come up with an agar algorithm to, to learn how to get, uh, you know, work the internet for their own, for their own benefit, if you will. And so they brought this to the Stafford, uh, student, uh, the Stanford students and, uh, they were, they had like a $1.5 million asking price or something like that. And they were eventually turned down by the, what was the CEO at that time, but they got a deal. He said no, but it wasn't to their faces. Like, hey, just give us, just give us one, one meeting, one meeting, one meeting. And so they got the one meeting and they lowered their asking price to $750,000 for this algorithm that would help them get control of the internet. They thought, hey, that's a good deal, but I don't want what it would require is them people to leave the Excite website. And they didn't want that. Uh, and so they turned down the deal for $750,000. If you've heard this story before, you know what the Stanford students went on to do with the company. They went into business themselves and created Google. And Google is now worth uh, $1.698 trillion with a T dollars. It is a top four company. Now they're looking back and saying, man, for $750,000, that sounds like pennies on the dollars. That's a big whoopsie. And then you guys know the story. Anybody still have a Blockbuster card? Uh, <laughs> no? Remember when Netflix offered to sell themselves to to them for like 50 or $60 million and they said, no, your business plan will never make it. And now Blockbuster is worth zero. And Netflix is worth how much? Two, almost uh, two, a little over $200 billion. Those are whoopsie moments where people looked at a company and said, that's a bad deal. But we have good deals in our history too. We, we're maybe, we would maybe be familiar of some good deals. I grew up a Red Sox fan and I think the Yankees got a pretty good deal on Babe Ruth, am I right? <laughs> I think that time where Bobby Eager, Eager, however you pronounce his name, saw into the future and said, Disney's going to buy Pixar. That was a lot of money, but it turned out to be a pretty good deal. When Thomas Jefferson saw for really pennies on the dollar, the Louisiana purchase, we look back historically and say, good deal. When we look at Jesus, how we respond to Jesus communicates if we see him as a good deal or a bad deal. And what I want to think about today is how we respond to Jesus actually elicits a response from him. He responds to our response. And so when we look at Jesus, are we thinking, man, yes, he is worthy of my full devotion. He is worthy of partial devotion or he is worthy of none of my devotion. How we respond communicates if we see him as a good deal, to use that terminology, and then it also elicits his response. I want to look back at those first few verses in Luke uh, chapter uh, 7. He says this, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now the centurion had a servant who was sick to the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews. This is kind of like that person that uh, has, a, has a respect for Jesus, but doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus. You know that person that like when they get sick or when they have a family member that's sick, they know you as the Christian person and they say, hey, could you pray for me? 
They don't, they don't often pray themselves, but they know you as a Christian person. And so, hey, when there's a time of need, I want your prayers at this moment. Asking him to come and to heal his servant. This is a big deal for somebody to value a servant like this. It shows that the servant is truly highly valued. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, they're actually lobbying for this centurion. He is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Will Jesus, a question for the Jewish reader at the first, uh, that first reads this, is Jesus going to love on somebody outside of the Jewish nation? I think we already read how that turns out. And in verse 6, the beginning of that, and Jesus went with them. Jesus is going to help these individuals, but this, this centurion at this point, even though we've read the whole story, at this point, the centurion, he's, he's what we would consider a non, a non-religious type. They make up between one-fourth and 50% of the American population now. It's a growing number. One, at least one-fourth of those around you that you go to work with, that you're at school with, they're what we consider nons. They, they, they are not that religious. They have respect for all religions, and they, and they like Jesus. Jesus is a champion for the outcast. He's a champion for the poor. They like Jesus. They, don't, they just don't think he is Lord and worthy of their submission. So if you admire Jesus but don't want to serve Jesus, what does that make you? Statistically average. <laughs> What's the rationale of the Jews as they come to Jesus? The rationale of the Jews is because they have, they have in, the, in their religious faith and, they, and how they, they've structured the system of the day, they have this balancing act. They have to, if the balance is tipped in good, here's a morally just person. And so since the balance is tipped, they're looking to Jesus and saying, hey, he's a worthy man. He has power. He's, he's used his power for good. He has position. He's used his position for good. Jesus, he has wealth, which in the Jewish culture means that you have an inside track to heaven if you are wealthy. And Jesus, come on. He's been good to our nation. Jesus, come on. He helped build the synagogue. Jesus, you, you owe him this. They're bargaining with Jesus. When you bargain with somebody, I like a good bargain, you're trying to create leverage. You're trying to develop leverage. You're trying to say, I have something you need. You have something I need. Let's work a deal together. This centurion, who is a, a commander of a of 100 people in the army, his focus is this servant. And since he's done good to the Jews, he's trying to leverage them with Jesus. I told you guys a few weeks ago uh, that my, my car on the way back from Thanksgiving had broken down. Uh, I talked to um, Mavis out in Carlisle, PA, uh, about two, two days after, and they said, yeah, it, it seems like it's the starter. We're going to replace that for you. I said, okay, boogers, you're about three hours away. Uh, I can't make it there until about Friday or Saturday. Uh, can I come then to get it? Is that okay? They're like, yeah, it'll be done by then. Just come on Friday or Saturday. So I have a good buddy, Wheels, and uh, uh, he picked me up at 5.45 a.m. on a Friday morning. 
And Ava and I had planned, okay, this is going to cost us about $750 to fix our car. We're going out. I'm going out with wheels to Carlisle, PA. We went to Kelly Blue Book and we're like, okay, our car is worth maybe like three to $4,000 as a trade-in. We're going to try to use our car. We're going to fix it and then try to leverage it for a trade-in and go that route. And because it's now not reliable and we're going we're gonna to trade it in and let them deal with that and those types of things. And so we get to Carlisle, PA. I get to Mavis and uh, actually, no. About a half hour before I got there, they called me on the phone and they said, hey, bad news. There's no power going to your starter. It's a bigger problem than we thought. I said, great, I'm 30 minutes away from New Jersey. And uh, they're like, well, we'll see what we can do. We get there. There was nothing we could do. Uh, the car power system had died, yada, yada, yada. I wish I had Mike there. He said he could have fixed it, but uh, I didn't know. And so uh, I went thinking I was going to pay $750 to fix my car, turn it into leverage uh, to get a new car. And by the end of the day, I had brought my car to a salvage yard in Carlisle, PA, where they paid me 200 big ones uh, for it. And uh, I had to pay $500 for Mavis to look at my car that they were unable to fix. I lost all my leverage. And by the end of the day, we had to get a new car, new to us. And it was the first time in my life where I literally went to bed with a headache. You know those people that like get like all frazzled with life and they go to bed with like a wild headache all the time? Uh, I never do that. But that day I went to bed with a splitting headache because I was just so stressed out by the situation. I had lost all my leverage that day. But what I will never forget about that day is Wheels Langworthy picking me up at 5.45 a.m. to drive me three hours to Carlisle, PA, spend that time with me getting my car over to the salvage yard, all of those things, and then coming back with me because he's a friend. We all need somebody like Wheels in our corner. This centurion is a powerful person and is using everything that he has to his disposal to, to be generous to the world around him. If a Gentile person, and, and using that biblical type of terminology, is that level of generous, we should be that level of generous, and if not more so, as Christians. He's looking around at the Jewish people, not as people to leverage, not as people to bargain, although he is maybe kind of doing that, but at first he sees them just as people. Not a mission to keep quiet, not a rebellion to squash, just, you guys have a need, I can help with that need. What ha would happen if this Christmas season we looked for points of agreement with people? Instead of looking at all the ways that we disagree, what if this Christmas season it wasn't about social networking around the Christmas tree or the, on the Christmas Eve party, but it was, it was about, hey, you're a person, I'm a person. Let's just start the conversation from there and not look to leverage and bargain with people because people have a sense where they kind of know that you're doing that. Here's how the, the story goes on. It says, he went, when he was not far from the house. Now, Jesus is close. Now, when people get close to Jesus, both in proximity and like an understanding of Jesus, Jesus has a way of impacting how we view ourselves. The, the centurion sent friends saying to him, uh, Lord, uh, and this is something too, by the way, uh, that the Jews never called Jesus Lord. And now... The centurion through others is, do not trouble, which means to bother, annoy, or agitate yourself, uh, for I am not worthy. This is a different you know, use of the word worthy, to have you come under my roof. Jesus, don't be close to me because of how unworthy I am. 
Therefore, I do not presume uh, to, uh, to come to you, uh, but say the word, let, your ser- let, uh, let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority with my soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion as, as loves this, uh, loves this uh, servant of his, and as time is going on, now he's realizing as Jesus is getting closer and closer, that he is unworthy. As Jesus, who is, the, who is the embodiment of all that is good, all that is loving, all that is holy, as Jesus is getting closer, what is he coming to the understanding of? That he's not worthy. That he's a sinful man. Isn't that the essence of faith, where we humbly submit ourselves and we see our unworthiness and his infinite worth and we submit ourselves to that? As he looks at Jesus, he's not presuming that Jesus will act. He knows that Jesus can. He's hoping he will, but he's acknowledging Jesus. I am unworthy, but listen, I know what authority is. Jesus, here's my faith and trust. If you just speak, I know my servant can be healed. He's communicating power. He's communicating a great level of worth to Jesus. He has an attitude, unlike the Jewish people that first went to him. And he's seeing it as so, so different. He's treating Jesus so, so differently. So we have this battle of worth. So what is it? I mean, the Jewish people are saying he's of infinite, this this man, the centurion is of of infinite worth. And this man, as he realized that Jesus is of infinite worth, he has a, a battle with himself. So which is it? It would be great if we could have numbers in a test to tell us what people are actually worth. Well, in baseball, there is. Baseball, it's called a war. Have you, have you guys heard this terminology? Baseball is driven all by numbers. Uh, war is a number assigned to all the players of uh, past and present and, and war means this, wins above replacement. War measures a player's value in all fa- facets of the game, uh, deciphering how many more wins he's worth than a replacement level player at the same position. So if your war number is high, you are irreplaceable. If your war number is low, you are on your team knowing that you are wildly replaceable. You could have a war number when you walk into the clubhouse of your baseball team and that number would suggest, if not, just tell the team outright that the team would be better off playing a minor league player than you because you are terrible and the numbers all say it. The all-time greats when it comes to war are, you can see names like Bench and Schmidt, Gehrig and Ruth. How annoying that Ruth is on that list as a Red Sox fan. Oh my gosh, and Gary and Ruth played together. How unstoppable were the Yankees back in the day? They had some irreplaceable players. These are the all-time greats, including Mr. Steroids, Mr. Bonds himself, and it's incredible. Thank God we don't have that number in the church. (laughs) What would it be like to be on a team where you literally know that you're replaceable? Or what would it be like to be on a team where you know you're irreplaceable? to be one of these guys, to walk onto the team and say, I can do whatever I want because if they replace me, these are all the wins that they're going to lose out on. Jesus doesn't really see worth like that. 
See, the Jews are seeing it in power position. They're running the numbers and saying, here's, here's the war number associated to each person. What would change if this Christmas season you didn't look at people as if they were replaceable or irreplaceable, but you just looked at people as people? And what would change this Christmas season if you started to realize that Jesus is one, irreplaceable, but that my God, who so loved the world, also looks at you as irreplaceable? What would change this Christmas season if you started to believe that? Here's where our story uh, ends. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, now he's speaking to everybody. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This was reason to marvel. He hasn't marveled at Israel's faith because they haven't shown it to him. He's looking at this man, and this is a condemnation to Israel that, man, and if somebody outside the nation of God has such faith, but you, Israel, do not. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, what did they find? The servant. Well, now first I need to tell you that this is a narrative. It's not prescriptive. This is not something that is an absolute. It does not mean that I have a sick child or I have, I have a sick loved one or I have this problem at work. And if I turn to Jesus, it's all good and groovy. I went to a sermon and I heard it. This is a narrative. It can happen, but like the centurion's attitude, we don't presume that it will, but we know it can. The centurion is, is seen as somebody of faith. The Jewish per person saw power, privilege. They, they saw money. They saw all these things and they equated, this man is holy. They looked at all the external things and said, this person has it going on. What did Jesus look at? What did Jesus marvel at? He marveled at what was on the inside, the faith that now was exuding out of him. What does marvel mean? Marvel means this, to be filled with wonder or astonishment. Here's a Gentile man in authority communicating to Jesus some profound faith. And think about this. It gives Jesus a sense of wonder and astonishment. Jesus sees this man so differently than the Jewish people now. And he has an emotion not mentioned by the Jewish people. He is now marveling at a human being and the human being's faith. This Christmas season, my uh, nephew, uh, known to our family as little Jonathan, uh, was uh, a cow uh, in the uh, Christmas play at his, at his church. And little Jonathan, if you're watching, I'm not with you, but you smell like a grandma fart. Uh, and so that makes me the coolest uncle in the room. Uh, and so that's our joke. We tell poop jokes. And so here we are. Don't judge me. You do it too. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but I digress. Uh, he's, he's an adorable little kid. And while I was on a sabbatical, there was one Sunday in particular that I was just so moved by the moment. Because there was a moment where every single one in my family, my, my two brothers, myself, my family, we were all sitting in church under God's word, worshiping and praising God. And my brother in Virginia was at church. My brother Jonathan was in New Hampshire at church. I was with him in New Hampshire at church. Ava was at church here. And, and my parents were at church uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire. And it was every single person in my immediate family, all of them were in, 
in church. And I texted my mom and dad saying, hey, we may have our issues and we might have our things. And my brother, Jonathan, he knows how to ruin family game night like anybody. Uh, but many years later, we're all in church and we're all serving Jesus in our own right. And I just sat and was like, mom and dad, good job. Through all the highs and lows of raising the family, like, good job. That, that is a really cool thing. And I think something to marvel at. And I know as I tell that story that there are people in this room that crave that very thing. You raise your kids in church. They once went, they went to church religiously, as to say. And you crave the day where the family is back at church submitting to the word of God. This Christmas season, and we look at Jesus and we look at this sense of marvel, what would bring you a sense of wonder and astonishment? What would bring you a sense of wonder and astonishment? Would it be that time where maybe somebody has forgiven you, but you've been feeling so unworthy to be around them every Christmas, every Easter, every Thanksgiving, because you know you really wronged them? What if this Christmas season, your faith allowed you to receive forgiveness from somebody else? Or what if this Christmas season, uh, this, this was a moment, there is, that, there is that uncle, there is that father, there is that, there is that mother, there is that, there is that somebody that for 20 years, you remember that day 20 years ago like it was yesterday and you, are, you have such a hard time talking to them. And you're holding your right of unforgiveness over their heads. What if this Christmas season you said, I forgive you, before you felt forgiveness and emotions come later on? And what if those words, I forgive you, those three words that you might say for the first time in decades to somebody else might give them a glimpse of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be a thing of marvel that they turn to Jesus? Wouldn't it be a thing of marvel for the grandparent in this room to hear the grandchild say, you know what, we used to go to church. Why do you hold on to your faith? I want to know and that you're really actually inquiring about it. What if there is that family situation that's going to make Christmas Eve dinner so awkward tonight because he's going to bring up politics, they're going to bring up finances, they're going to bring up the stock market, they're going to bring up this, they're going to bring up that, they're going to, oh, do not tell Susie to talk to Jake. Oh, and if they get in the same room, they're going to sit on opposite sides of the table. You're thinking, you've been talking to your wife all the way in. We're going to see this person here, 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 because this person can't be over but what if this Christmas season, instead of walking away from the Christmas table proven right over a situation, that you humbled yourself and made faith the most important thing? That instead of being proven right, if, if so-and-so came to faith in Jesus Christ, that that would actually be the thing to marvel over. I think with this whole passage points to is that we need to let emotions, we need to let faith ignite our emotions. Let faith ignite how we handle the Christmas season. Let faith ignite how, how we feel about certain things and let that guide how we walk in and out of our Christmas traditions. 
And that's all well and good. And that's, it's nice to say that Jesus would marvel. Like, it's weird to say as a pastor, like, if I'm honest, like, that Jesus would look at a human and he would marvel. There would be wonder and astonishment over people. Like, that is a weird thing for me to feel. That is a way, weird thing to me to feel about myself. That's a weird thing for me to communicate. And I was thinking about that this week. And, and I was thinking about, like, okay, what does that emotion look like? And God brought me to Zephaniah. Have you heard of it? It's a book in the Bible. Uh, Zephaniah 3, uh, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, where, where it says this, the Lord's your God. He's talking to the nation of Israel. They're in complete rebellion. They're running away from God. But in the midst of this, this, this book of judgment, there is this hope that if you turn back, this is what God will do. The, that the Lord your God is in your midst, the Almighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I know there's many this Christmas season that would walk in saying, I know God loves me, but I don't feel like he likes me too much. And this thought that if we turn to him in faith, no matter how the world sees us, when God sees our inner faith, that God would quiet me with his love. That God would rejoice over me with singing. That God is glad that you exist. He doesn't look at you and say, I regret making this human being. That when you've turned to him in faith, he's rejoicing over you with singing. That when you first turn to Jesus in faith, that the angels sang. Because another one is going to come home to be with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When we started this church, there was an individual that uh, only knew judgment from the Christian community. Uh, he had gotten a Christian girl uh, pregnant and knew a whole lot of hate from the Christian community. And I sat down not to throw judgment on him, not to throw hate on him. A young person did a young person thing. Uh, and it was bad, and it wasn't something to overlook. But at the same time, there was a gospel message to proclaim. And so I proclaimed the gospel message, and we were sitting down, we were having lunch, and I talked about God's love. I talked about that, man, yes, you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. Your poo stinks. My poo stinks. And we all need Jesus who died on the cross, who lived the perfect life, who died in our place. I shared it all with him. And he looked at me at that table and he said, yeah, I believe that. I said, great, well, let's pray. You should accept Jesus right now. No, I won't do that. Huh? You just said you believe it. Yeah, but I don't deserve it. And it rocked me. He looked me in the eyes and said, I'm not worthy of God's love. And I paused for a minute and then I looked him in the eyes and I was like, actually, that's not your call. <laughs> because at the foot of the cross, Jesus decided that you were worth dying for. Worth of something is determined by what someone's willing to pay for it. And Jesus looks at you and says, you are worth my life. I give it up freely for you. So maybe you're in this room, we've talked about the centurion, maybe you've been to a thousand Christmas services and you've never heard Luke 7 preach. You've heard Luke 1, Luke 2, you've heard the early ones about Jesus' birth, but we tried something different this year. Maybe you're seeing Jesus in a new light. You are worth the life of Jesus because he said so. 
Not because you've done anything to tip the scales. Jesus already tipped those scales. In fact, I think he kicked them right on over. (laughs) Romans 10 says uh, this, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Uh, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So here, could you guys stand with me? We're going to end in a a posture of of prayer of sorts, standing and submitting ourselves to God. I'm going to pray, and I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that for the first time ever, your Christmas This Christmas, 2023, will be the one that you know the full meaning of Christmas. There was a baby who was born to die and then rose again with the offer of life who looks at you and says, for God so loved the world of which you're a part of it, his son came to die for you. And that God would see you as righteous and perfect because of it.